Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. If you've ever been out on a Sunday afternoon and you happen across a church service letting out, you'll probably see some sharply dressed people. There may even be a handful of ladies wearing some amazing hats. Chances are that stylish headgear was handmade. Who made those hats and how did they do it? That's where folk art comes in, traditions and crafts that have been passed down generation to generation from teacher to apprentice. Tennessee has a rich history in folk arts. So who's working to keep these traditions alive? And what are these traditions? From broom making to fiddle stringing. That's all coming up after this hour. Later in this hour, pardon me. But first, hundreds gathered in downtown Nashville Friday for a rally against gender-affirming health care for young adults led by some of our state's top lawmakers. This comes after a conservative media host pushed Tennessee Republicans to oppose these surgeries, taking a particular aim at Vanderbilt's transgender health clinic. Friday's display was called the, quote, rally to end child mutilation. And they were met by a large contingent of counter-protesters. WPLN state politics reporter Blaze Ganey and senior health care reporter Blake Farmer were there, and they join us now. Blaze, Blake, welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Got the A-team right here. So... <laughs> I want to get a feel for the rally. We see a lot of these outside the state capitol. Blaze, what stood out to you? Well, I'm not 100% sure that I'm the best gauge, but there were, I would say, safely 300 people there, probably definitely a little higher than that. But, um, you know, the people there for Walsh really outnumbered the counter-protesters, but the counter-protesters had loudspeakers with them, and, I mean, it really helped multiply their voice. They were heard throughout the entire rally, um, screaming different things that probably can't repeat on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point before the rally got started, Mark Meckler, a conservative political activist who was there um, as one of the speakers, he was walking amongst the counter-protesters, and they you know, were, were not shy to tell him you know, all types of vulgarities and tell him that he was not wanted. And you know, when I spoke to him off to the side, he said that he was really just trying to have a conversation with them to understand their thoughts. I'm not sure how true that is, but... I mean, that's what he says he was there for. He had a camera with him, so um, you kind of understand that. And then as far as the police presence, they they were pretty heavy. Uh, state troopers were seen all around the crowd. Um, and when I got there, Blake was telling me, well, the Proud Boys are here. And once uh, he noticed they were there, he saw more police sort of come out of the building that was right there behind us. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I stood next to a couple of the, the uh, police, and— they were basically just standing near the groups and between counter-protesters just in case things got a little out of hand, which there was some screaming and fussing in people's faces, but I, I didn't see any physical uh, altercations. All right, and Blake, you know, from what you could see and and who were you who, and who you were talking to, what organized groups were out there? When, which politicians? Well, uh, as far as organized groups, you know, it's, it's a real mashup, and I'd say really the through line, at least for the folks who were there, you know, sort of out in support, you know, to a person, they all seem to be fans and followers of Matt Walsh, who is this uh, conservative uh, media host that, that that put the thing together. You know, their signs did tell you something of allegiance. Um, you had some signs, you know, saying vote Republican. A lot of folks wearing Make America Great Again gear uh, for what that says. 
Um, there were also quite a few signs that cited scripture from the Bible, uh, often in sort of like condemnation of of, of uh, transgender care. Of course, the Bible as we know, could be used by folks on just about any side of any political issue. Uh, but also, uh, you know, you did have a healthy number of folks um, with signs that were supporting transgender teens. Now, in terms of politicians, there were not huge numbers. Um, you know, we we didn't see the governor out there or anything. But it, importantly, you did have the majority leaders of both chambers, the, the House and the Senate. So so William Lambert and Jack Johnson. Um, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn um, also spoke with the two of them, though it, it's unclear how she expects to challenge gender affirming care on a national level. Um, you know, though, all three of them waited until the end of the rally to speak. And I almost thought that they might not come out, um, given the sort of white power signs that were being flashed by, uh, like Blaze was saying, that the Proud Boys who, who were in the crowd and waving flags. Not to mention, you had these counter protesters who were blaring sirens, trying to shout over um, the, the different speakers. It felt like a very volatile situation. But in the end, they did come out and, and speak at the mic at the podium. All right. That's who turned out. Let's back up. How did we even get to this moment where hundreds are were gathering in Nashville over transgender health care? You know, it, it really it very clearly all traces back to um, a, a segment that that Matt Walsh um, um, produced and, and, and put out um, in late September. It was it basically blasted Vanderbilt's pediatric transgender clinic. Uh, kind of making it sound like this clinic was doing something um, not just inappropriate, but maybe even illegal. You had Republican lawmakers here in the state who who really took language directly from this fairly misleading piece and, and just ran with it, calling on Vanderbilt to halt all surgeries on uh, minors. And, and let's be clear. I mean, Walsh does not consider himself a journalist. I mean, I mean he's an activist. He's the one who organized this rally at the state capitol on Friday. Um, in fact, we've got a clip from him. Here he is trying to talk over some of the counter protesters who were shouting him down. That's the way it works. If you try to uh, shut me up or drown me out, I just keep talking. That's the way this goes. And that's, that's true of everybody here, right? The, the more they try to drown us out, the louder we're going to be. You know, I was pretty amazed to see how Tennessee Republicans really just heaped praise on Walsh as they came to the microphone. Um, because while they're mostly just saying they're concerned for children about maybe making life-changing decisions at such a young age, Walsh is really challenging the entire idea that anyone could be transgender. I mean, he put out a documentary this year called What is a Woman? And, you know, seems like most of the point is trying to get people to kind of fumble through an explanation of, of gender uh, on camera. You know, he says gender affirmations really just about affirming gender confusion. And he calls it a battle between good and evil. Um, you know, in pretty incendiary terms, he's saying doctors are drugging and mutilating children. And now you got the state's top Republican lawmakers. You know, they're not quite being as brash as he is, but like I said, they're happy to heap praise on him for leading this fight and um, at least echoing part of this demand that gender-affirming surgeries need to stop, at least for minors. It seems like a key takeaway is that Tennessee Republicans are ready to start filing legislation. What are they vowing to do? Yeah, so they didn't get in, into really any specifics, but both the House and Senate minor, majority leaders were there, and they said that they want to ban life-altering surgeries for minors. And here's William Lambert, the representative, explaining that. 
My colleagues that stand with me today agree, and I think we're going to be able to protect children with your help. We need to make surgical mutilation for the purpose of altering the appearance of a child illegal. Amen. So you see, it doesn't sound like these lawmakers are bluffing uh, pretty, you know, boisterous about what they're trying to do. Mm. And Senator Jack Johnson, the majority leader in the Senate, obviously said, you know, he spoke right after Lambert and basically said early next month that he will be filing a bill to end the practice of irreversible body altering surgeries on minors. So, you know, it sounds like they're very certain they're going to do this. Definitely sure sounds like a promise. And, Blaze, I know you'll be following this as it develops at the legislature. Now, Blake, you've been covering this for weeks from a health lens, and there's a lot of misinformation circulating. Are these Republicans citing trustworthy information? Well, you know, I mean, it seems like a lot of their information comes from Matt Walsh uh, himself or uh, his— pieces that he put out, what's on his show. They did also, some of them mentioned talking to pediatricians, presumably here in Tennessee, who who seem to tell them that they have concerns about how their own professional organizations are embracing transgender care. You know, folks on the stage Friday really questioned um, something that was surprising to me. They questioned the suicide rates for trans teens, which, you know, many supporters of gender-affirming care kind of point to as sort of the bottom line reason for making sure that this care is available because the suicide rate is so high for transgender teens. So I'm not saying there shouldn't be some scrutiny on those studies, but but they're essentially dismissing the idea of being transgender, not just saying people should wait until they're older to make these decisions, like taking hormones or having surgery. Um, and what state lawmakers are really doing here is trying to challenge the standards of care that are set by inter- international bodies, uh, including the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Yeah, as you mentioned, Senator Marsha Blackburn was there, and she also spoke on Friday. Give me a rundown. What were her, the core of her comments? Did she make any promises? Well, the one promise she made is that after Tennessee figures out how to stop these types of surgeries is that she wants to take it nationwide. I'd imagine she talked to some other congressmen, get them to talk to their state legislators, and try to get it done around the states. But as far as in her position, she didn't really make any promises. She said she'd protect children and that she wants people to elect people this midterm that will protect children. And also added in there that, you know, she wants Congressman Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer voted out. But, I mean, as far as anything concrete, it didn't really seem uh, like she was ready to go on that ledge. But she did uh, mention that she had filed an for an investigation into puberty blockers with the Food and Drug Administration last month and that she hasn't received an answer. Um, and she she blamed that on the Biden administration, of course. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not really sure if there's any promises from her, but definitely here statewide, you have a lot of action that will be seems to be taking place this upcoming session. All right. So as we look forward, I'd like to hear what each of you will be watching next for this. Blake? You know, I, I've been surprised how much focus there has been um, by state lawmakers on surgeries. You almost have to listen closely, but the, they sort of narrow the, uh, their concerns to surgeries. And I say this because right now there are so few surgeries that seem to be happening uh, involving trans teens in the state. You know, before uh, Vanderbilt paused all surgeries on trans teens, it was doing, they said, five a year. And this was never on genitals, even though that's kind of the suggestion of these statements, you know, about mutilation, butchering, right? Um, So state lawmakers have been quiet about hormones. And hormone therapy is 
the far more common phase of treatment for minors, um, you know, transgender teens. So I'll be interested if this bill that that the majority leaders say they're writing will uh, address hormone therapy at all, because that would affect far more people. Blaze. Yeah, I'm also very interested in looking at the words that make it onto this bill. Uh, Senator Johnson and Representative William Lambert will be the sponsors. And he said that he's working with Matt Walsh and medical doctors. I think the most interesting thing would be is if they're going to work with Vanderbilt at all, who is really at the helm of all this. That is WPLN politics reporter Blaze Ganey and senior health reporter Blake Farmer. Thanks to you both for being here and thanks for your reporting. Thanks for having us. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk folk arts. First, we'll meet some artists and talk about the crafts from traditional Kurdish music to brooms. Are you a folk artist? Tweet us about your craft at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Have you ever learned a skill that was passed down for decades or centuries? What did you learn, and how did it feel to be a part of living history? The key to folk art is not only taking one's time to learn the intricacies of their craft, but to pass that knowledge down to the next generation. When this doesn't happen, we run the risk of those traditions, crafts, and musical styles fading away. We also know that a lot of this expertise isn't easily found online or even in books. Nothing beats hands-on learning. So what are some of Tennessee's longstanding folk art traditions? Who are the people keeping them alive? Well, I'm going to let our first guest introduce himself. We welcome you tonight to Sutton Old Time Music Hour here at TB Sutton General Store in Granville, Tennessee, where you'll hear the best in bluegrass and old time music each and every Saturday night. My name is Jimmy Bilbrey, and I will be your host for this evening. This program is recorded to air on 62 syndicated stations that broadcast our show worldwide. For more information concerning our program... That is Jimmy Bilbrey, songwriter, bluegrass musician, and radio host for the Sutton Old Time Music Hour. He joins us now. Jimmy, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you with us, sir. So I understand you grew up in the world of bluegrass music, right? Yes. My dad uh, was uh, played 12 years on the road in a professional banjo and guitar. And so we were. We had music playing all day long, every day. Dolly Parton, my my mother was a uh, a real big fan of bluegrass and country as well. So that's what we heard 24 hours a day, basically. Tell me a little bit more about that family environment as as you were growing oh, up. Oh, it was just a, we had a record player, and uh, she uh, we had uh, pickings every Friday night. We'd have uh, some friends over. My dad would, and and uh, they played bluegrass music for about three hours, three or four hours, and then. Uh, we did that every Friday night, and uh, my mom was a big Elvis fan, so we watched every movie he had and heard all of his albums, and she loved Sam Cooke. She had a very eclectic taste, and then, uh, but mostly it was bluegrass and country. Tell me, what instruments do you play? I play, uh, started with a bluegrass up, upright bass, and then went to the fiddle, and then uh, along the way I, I picked up the guitar, mandolin, piano, uh, banjo, and ukulele. You're like a one-man band and, yourself, uh, huh? 
Yeah, just well, I, I I used to be a one man band, but I couldn't keep them together. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes, I, I I teach, and I, that's that really has stood me in uh, in good stead, uh, being able to play many different instruments. Blessed to. Now I understand that you've been learning how to make your own fiddle. What inspired you to do that? Well, uh, I went to college uh, with a scholarship in classical violin, and I uh, started collecting material. Uh, on how to make them in a notebook. And so uh, just a few years ago, I got that notebook out and uh, started, uh, the door started open. I started finding the opportunity to try to make one. And so uh, when I met Mr. Harold, he's been a friend of the family for 50 years. But as soon as he started making fiddles, uh, I just thought, I'm going to go up and see if I can learn from him. And uh, so that's how this whole thing got started. He just lives six minutes away if you don't drive the limit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, <laughs> he just lives about six, six, six minutes away up the hill here. And so I, I go up to his house and uh, we just started uh, exploring how to make them better. And uh, it's just been a labor of love. And uh, I just priceless. It's just priceless for me. That's wonderful. Now, so Mr. Harold is your teacher. Can yes. You, can you tell us about him? Oh, he is a. Uh, he is uh, 81, I think now, and he's a furniture maker. Started out as a furniture maker, and can make anything he can uh, see, or just it's just amazing, and and makes his own tools a lot of times. And so uh, uh, when he started, I met when we started working together, it was just uh, so natural, and uh, I just just try to soak up everything I can from uh, his intellect and uh, the way he does things. Well, what's it like? He to, knows. What's it like to learn from a oh. master carpenter? Oh, I just uh, don't talk a lot. I just watch what he's doing. And then he, uh, if he feels like it, he'll tell me why he's doing what he's doing. And uh, I, that's just how it's been. I, I'm, a, I'm a relatively a beginner when it comes to that sort of thing. So he was able to just pour into me what he, what he knew and the shortcuts he would take here and there that made the job easier. And uh, just that knowledge is just, uh, like I say, it's just priceless. And uh, how to use the tools, how to use the the um, electric tools without sawing your hands off and <laughs> all sorts of things. Uh, it's just a, it's a broad, you know, when, when we first start, it's a broad thing. You use big tools, you make big strokes. And then as it gets uh, close to being done, you take little bitty strokes, mm. but they're more significant. And one stroke can ruin it up to the very end. All right. So uh, it's uh, it's quite a uh, um, tedious thing. You got to have patience, that's for sure. And I want to bring in my next guest, another folk artist who's mastered a different craft. Jack Martin is a fourth generation broom maker, and he joins us now. Jack, welcome to This oh, Is Nashville. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you with us, my friend. So, tell me about your craft of broom making. Well, now. In my family, the broom making actually started out as a sideline. My family, we have been farming here in McNary County since the Civil War, so we have always been farmers. I'm a fifth-generation farmer, and so that's that's what my great granddad that and my great granddad and granddad did. They would grow a little broom corn in the summertime, make a few brooms in the winter, give them away at church, and somebody got married. So it wasn't really a business or anything, and I never really knew folk art until my wife, baby doll, Virginia, uh, come along and we met uh, later in life. And so uh, her artistic vision and everything t- 
took an old an old idea and twisted it into something called folk art that I never knew anything about. And so the last 35 years of my life has been perfecting the broom making that my great granddad started as a sideline. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, broom making is not a craft a lot of people think about. I mean, I have a broom and I have a Swiffer, but I never really thought about how my broom was made. How how are the brooms you create? How are they different and more unique than the brooms that most of us are familiar with? Primarily, it's the broom corn. My family has raised their broom corn. Broom corn is a, a native African plant, uh, made its way into America during the slave trade era, like a lot of other plants and things. And so uh, Ben Franklin has kind of uh, had the list about being one of the first ones to grow broom corn and make brooms out of it because it's just a tough natural fiber. So that's that's one of the main things is the way we process our broom corn, air dry it. Uh, of course, I plant it just like I would a regular corn crop by taking soil samples and everything. The better the broom corn that I raise, you know, the bigger the plant. The because uh, it takes me 200 plants to make a broom, you get one small piece of broom corn at the top of each plant. And the broom the family has made for over 100 years is called a house broom, and it has two pounds of broom corn, which makes it a nice, heavy-duty, all-around broom. So, okay, break it down for me. How do you make a broom? Okay, my great-granddad built this machine, two pieces, actually. One of them is called a wrapping table, and it holds the broom handle, and I've got a, a spool of wire coming from the bottom of the machine, with a, and it all runs off of uh, 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 chains and pulleys, just like a bicycle. As I, push and, uh, as I push down on the foot pedal, it will turn the broom handle and pull the wire around the end of the handle. And as I do that, I add small layers of broom corn around the handle, which would be about four or five layers of broom corn. And once I finish that, attaching it. I use over 12 feet of wire to bind it nice and tight. Once I have it bound to the handle, I have the old-fashioned round broom. Every broom starts out round to begin with. Mm-hmm. Then from that, I've got another machine. It's called a broom press, which was uh, invented basically by the Shakers around 1840 that allows me to stand up and take this round broom, press it flat, and then I've got a big thimble, leather thimbles, that goes on each hand, and a six-inch needle, and then I literally hand-stitch the broom to go from round to flat. But I still make and sell lots of round brooms because that's the original old-fashioned kind of broom, and they sweep very well, just in a different way. Now, you mentioned that it wasn't always a business in your family, though you ultimately made it one. I'm, I'm curious, though. What does this craft mean to you and your family? Well... First of all, it wasn't. A, I wish I could take the credit for what you're saying, but if it hadn't been for Baby Doll, because now uh, Virginia, uh, uh, she used to tour. She was a big time blues singer and toured with John Mayall for years. So that's why she was so artistic. She saw things that I didn't see. I was kind of like the muscle. You can tell me how to make something, and I can make it. So it has changed my life because of the way she looked at everything. And we have had we've traveled all around the country performing. Uh, I have had a chance to meet the most incredible people. It's just been such a great thing. But now, also keeping it alive. Now, when my when I asked my granddad to show me how to make a broom, he said one time, "You watch me one time," and that was it. 
So I, I teach it a little bit differently than, than he taught me, but it has been a blessing in my life, and I try to pass on every bit of information that I possibly can. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kalile Colonna. We're talking this hour about traditional folk arts in Tennessee. How are these longstanding crafts being taught to a new generation of creators? Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest has been bringing sounds of his home to Nashville since 2008. Kurdish musician Arkan Dusky, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, like Jimmy, you grew up in a musical family and you were taught by your father. How important is music to your family? Uh, music has been around my house uh, for decades. It started off from back home and uh, came to uh, my uh, uncles, and uh, my father picked it up, and it's just been going on and on. So my father passed it on to me, and like I've mentioned this in a couple other interviews, that uh, I feel like that... Uh, if I don't pass it to anybody else, I feel like that the music, it's going to stay with me. And it's, it's, I don't want it to die in the family. I want to pass it on. And right now I've got a son that's interested in it. I'm trying to pass it on to him. So how does it feel to be teaching your son the tradition that was passed down to you from your father? It, feels, it feels great because uh, now I remember when I was in my son's age, as he, he is now, and uh, so I feel like, you know, that uh, whatever that he used to teach me and, and, and those uh, simple steps that I'm just basically just uh, passing on to him the same step that I, the same steps that I learned from him. So mm-hmm. I'm just passing on to him and hopefully he can get where, where I'm at now. Is your son excited when you give he's, him lessons? He's very excited. He loves it. He enjoys it. But, uh, you know, there's a couple stuff that uh, we're working on. I want him to pick up, but. We'll get there little by little. Mm-hmm. Now, we live in the music capital of yes. the United States. Tell me, how does Kurdish music fit into the diaspora of sounds here? In 1995, that's when my dad uh, was getting ready to uh, to basically develop the Kurdish music as much as possible. So we were doing little by little, and he had a little bit of help with him, but he didn't really get the help that we needed and uh, at the time, we didn't know that because we were so new to the United States, we didn't know that Nashville was the music city. Mm-hmm. So after so so many, so long that we lived in Nashville, come to find out that Nashville is a music city. So we thought it fits perfectly. And then we're just, uh, you know, passing music along to everybody else, all the nation, all the other nation as much as possible. I want to give everybody a feel for your music. We have a clip that you featured on your YouTube page where you post studio recordings and live performances. Let's listen. So what are the instruments we're hearing here? It's uh, strings, uh, saws, which is guitar. Um, all the sound that you hear, all those, they're not, uh, they're coming directly from the keyboard. 
Okay. So on the keyboard, the type of the type of instruments that we play, since we don't have that many that many uh, instrument players, as far as Zorna, which is one of the very very uh, famous one, and uh, the Saz, the one that that you heard from the beginning of the clip. And then the rest of them is just, they're just basic sounds. So I, you know, uh, it's not somebody that's really, really playing it. Because if somebody is really live playing it, it would sound really, really better and different. But all that that you see is just coming directly from the keyboard. Okay. Okay. I really dig this. Now, musician and apprentice fiddlemaker Jimmy Bilbrey is still with us. Now, Jimmy, what do you think of those sounds? Do you feel like a collaboration with Arkan coming? Oh, that was fantastic. That's a quite, it's like a, the notes are coming so fast, it's hard to uh, imagine uh, playing along with that as, as far as the fiddle, you know, because it's so much, so it's more or less not as, uh, uh, not as many notes usually. Sometimes it is. But I sure appreciated what he was doing. I, I wonder about the notes real quick, Archon. Is there a particular, is it tough or easy to collaborate with traditional American instruments? The we use quarter tones, and not everybody uh, around the world use quarter tones. For example, the music here, uh, Nashville, they don't use quarter tones. And I've performed in so many different places. Uh, there's a lot of musicians they come up to me or they're in the audience trying to play along. They just cannot find that tone. So I've had instrument players, you know, that was in the audience trying to find that particular tone, that quarter tone, the one we play. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was struggling, trying to find it. And then finally he called me. He said, is there any way I can come sit down with you and then you can tell me exactly what this note is? I was like, yeah, sure, come on. And then, you know, it took him a, a minute to find it, but he was able to find it. And then once he found where that note was coming from, it was very, very interesting to him. I'm sure that yeah. probably creates some really wonder, wonderful atmosphere for mm-hmm. collaboration and something new. Yeah. Now, since 2017, the Tennessee Arts Commission has created an apprenticeship program to support the legacy of folk art. You all have been a part of this program. Jimmy, how did you first learn about it? Well, I had a couple of friends that uh, were involved with it. Uh, Trenton Carruthers, who is a multi-instrumentalist here in Cookville and uh, plays a lot of the old-time songs from back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, and then another friend of mine, uh, Jackson Carter, who plays a Bill Monroe style mandolin, and they were both uh, blessed to be in the organization. And I just uh, I thought that might help uh, me to get more of the word out uh, here in uh, Cookville about uh, that other people could do the same thing that I was doing with Harold, and and it's come to fruition. We've got a couple of people that are interested in doing exactly what we're doing. So it's done its job, and it's been such a blessing for our community. Now, as well as uh, inspiring Harold to uh, continue to uh, build. At 81, he told me four fiddles ago that he was done. Hmm. And so he, he came over the other day and showed me his latest one. So it has reignited the fire for him to, uh, to uh, make fiddles. That's awesome. Now, Jack, what can we learn from keeping traditions alive while adapting to the ever-changing modern world we're in? Well, I guess it's depends on you know where you're wanting to take your you know your skill me personally i I make a living at mine and so of course that helps me keep it going and i i'm always trying to show other broom makers you know a way of making a living at it and that kind of perpetuates it allowing to you know see for other people to see it 
my wife and I, we developed a program years ago called a Living History Show, and we have demonstrated to over a million kids right up in their school. So uh, I think it's about just showing off as much as you possibly can, and somebody's going to spark a flame somewhere. Arkan, why is it important to you to keep this legacy alive? I mean, it's very important to me because uh, we don't have, we have musician here, but not a whole lot. Not a lot of uh, musicians here. So I feel like it's very important to me that, uh, you know, to keep this going and try to develop uh, the, the Kurdish music to uh, reach to other places, other people, other people's ears as much as possible. And it's very important to me that, you know, I mean, I'm not going to be doing this forever, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very important to me to, for me to pass it on to my son and then hopefully he can pick up from, from where I'm going to live. Yeah left off. That is Kurdish musician Arkan Dusky. He was joined by apprentice fiddle maker Jimmy Bilbrey and master broom maker Jack Martin. Thanks to you all for being with us on the Thank show today. We're going to go out listening to some more of Arkan's music. Here's a clip when he performed at Nerus, the Nerus Festival in Nashville earlier this year. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about Tennessee's folk art traditions and the efforts underway to preserve them. Are you a folk artist? What is your specialty? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. The chisels, knives, and wood sanders are well-worn inside the workshop at Delgado Guitars in East Nashville. The Delgado family has been shaping wood into world-class instruments since 1928. Today, a handmade electric guitar is getting a set of golden strings. This family business started in Mexico. Now, a third generation of Delgados carries on the tradition here in Nashville, and even a fourth generation is learning the craft. So this is a mandolin I built when I was around 9, 10. My design, it's a teardrop-shaped body, but it's different than traditional mandolins. I came up with the shape myself. There's a inlay on the fingerboard with a dove on it, cause my name means bird. In the very beginning, when we started out, I picked out the woods that I wanted and you have to iron them with an iron to get out all the moisture. And I burned myself <laughs> and Right, I think we went upstairs, there was a little first aid kit, and I put a Band-Aid on, and then I was like, okay, let's go back. <laughs> I think finishing it was really a sense of accomplishment, because I had worked on it for over six months. Since my grandfather, my father have all built instruments, and my uncle, um, it's 
kind of like a rite of passage. And I was also for the youngest and the first female, so that was pretty big. Ava Delgado is 14 now, but she finished her mandolin at age 10. And coming up soon, if all goes according to plan, her younger sister, Leela, may soon be crafting her first instrument at age nine. Mm, I'm thinking about making an ukulele. It's kind of like a couple thousand <laughs> feelings just like mixed together. <laughs> it's like all of the feelings you could think about. Like, it's like nervous, like confused, like, am I going to do it or not? <laughs> It's sort of just like satisfying how how they make like all of these detailed um, guitars and how my dad makes all of the little edges and have it all like beautiful. <laughs> My next guest is the teacher and father of Ava and Lila, Manuel Delgado, Master Luthier. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. So uh, glad to be here. <laughs> so you're a third generation old world Luthier. Yes. What does that mean exactly? Uh, so basically it means that we're using the old world techniques uh, in much similar to your earlier guests where we're using the techniques that my grandfather and my great uncle used. Um, one of the things that I always love to say is that if the power went out in our shop, we could still build you a guitar because there's very few power tools that we use. So very few. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can basically do it in the dark if you know what you're doing. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I might cut myself up a few times. But but yeah, we're, we're using uh, hand saws and chiseling the rosettes by hand and carving the necks with uh, knives. Similar, we make our own, a lot of our own tools we make ourselves. Okay, so when we talk about like skills being passed on for generations... We really mean it. I understand your father was baptized in a guitar shop. Yes. And, you know, we just met your daughters who are very young, but they've been around the workshop for years. How young are people when apprenticeships begin in the tradition? Well, you know, one of the things that I say is the way I was brought up and the way my girls are being brought up is really like a, a traditional old world apprenticeship where you're an apprentice was an apprentice until the master passed away. Mm. And then they became the master, so to speak. So I was the apprentice until my father passed away and then my grandfather passed away after him. And you, you grow up and, you know, when people come to me and they say they want to learn the way I learned, I say, well, grab a broom and start sweeten the shop because that's how I started. Okay. You know, so you're really learning from the ground up. Now, my next guest is a master at millinery. This is the art of hat making. Maxine White, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, I understand that you are what is known as God-taught or self-taught, which I have to say bravo. Um, tell me, how long have you been in design, into design and hat-making? Um, about 33, 34, between 30, I should say 35 years. 35 years. Well, what got you into it? I am an original. I like my own design. When I go out to a place, I don't want to be looking like everybody else. So, and I have this thing for vintage. And I lived in Illinois, and there was a vintage store that I used to go, and I would buy the old vintage hats, and I would redo them. So it got to a place to where every time I went to church, there was waiting to see 
what I had created. And someone told me then that there was a millinery place in downtown St. Louis. And that was where it all began. Once I walked into that store, it was like taking the child to Toys of Us for the first time. <laughs> I was flowed with all the supplies, everything that the millinery had to offer. And it just started from there. I learned then, I, you know, you could go and you could buy the blocks, uh, but you would block them yourself and design the hats the way you wanted to. And the first real hat I designed and did was for... My pastor's wife, she was a love of millinery, designer hats, and I did her a, it was called the bubble style with the feather pads mm -hmm. and the rhinestones, and she loved it. And I knew if I did something that she was approved of, I was good to go. So that was the beginning of it. And I've moved back to Tennessee shortly after that, and the place that I went to became my millinery supply store, and I just began to start doing it. Um, at one while, it was a business. I've enjoyed doing the hat shows. I do a lot of hat shows and being, I do a lot of vending. Mm -hmm. But just to seeing the joy and the excitement on the face of a female, when she wants to dress up and she wants a one-of-a-kind, I love it. Mm -hmm. no, that's beautiful. Now, my next guest leads the effort to pair up master folk artists like Manuel and Maxine with new apprentices to keep the traditions alive. Bradley Hansen is the, the director of Folk Life for Tennessee, the Tennessee Arts Commission. Bradley, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, how does it hear? How does it feel to you when you hear your guests tell these stories? Uh it's amazing. This has been so inspiring. We started this program in 2016. The first class finished in 2017, and we'd never done this in the state of Tennessee. It was it was an experiment. Other states had done it, but we'd never done it here. So we didn't know would we get great artists? Would they have great outcomes? Would they would they um, be able to share their mastery with the public? Would we be able to? provide them the opportunity that we told them we would, and to see now 65 projects we've done over six mm -hmm. years, 65 projects, 55 some art forms, and uh, I mean the return on investment is just uh, un unimaginable. It's truly inspiring. Break it down for us real quick. How does the program work? So the master and apprentice typically apply together. They usually know each other. They might be family members, community members. They complete an application together, a, a narrative. They develop a work plan. That's all them. Mm -hmm. They say, we're going to meet this often. We're going to work on these skills. We don't, we don't prescribe any of that to them. They develop their work plan, their budget, and then those are reviewed by a panel of, of folk life um, leaders in the state, experts, all of our grants are reviewed by lay people who we bring in. They score them. The, those that score the highest come into our program. The master artist is paid $2,000 for their work. The apprentice is paid $500 at the end of the project. And there's $800 available for supplies. And for a lot of projects, that money really, really matters. For some projects, the money matters, but it's also that recognition, that official uh, stamp and structure that the project gives them. Why did the state decide to invest in folk this way? Well, the Folk Life Program at the Arts Commission has been around since the 1980s, and we've done a lot of uh, grants, we've done a lot of exhibits. They've never done an apprenticeship program. But it's a model that has worked in some other states, and I felt like when I came in that it could work here, and uh, some other colleagues of mine that were working in Folk Life uh, agreed. We, we knew we had some art forms that were down to one 
or two practitioners in the state. Not every folk art is that endangered, but some certainly were. And we thought we've got to step in here a little bit and, and nudge these things on into the future. Um, on our watch, we don't want these things to go away. And if we can connect these artists to an opportunity, plus we go out and document these teams. Mm -hmm. It's the centerpiece of what we do in terms of our own archival work. Um, and it's it's really become a marquee program for us. And as you can hear today, these these are masters, and they can they can they can show you that in a very short period of time. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about Tennessee's folk art and how to preserve these traditions. Now, Manuel, you make instruments the old way, which is very different from the mass-produced modern methods. What does your craftsmanship offer to musicians that mass mass producers? can't quite match. Well, what I tell people is um, it's no different than you can go get a burger at McDonald's or you could get something, a, a meal prepared for you by a chef. And, you know, when it's something that's being custom built for you, we actually sit down and we get to know the player. We find out what it is that their interests are, the people that are close to them, all these different things. Ultimately, the most important thing, of course, is the playability and the tone of the instrument. Mm. But if we can implement with inlays and colors and different designs things that are special to that person, although somebody would look at it and they would appreciate the beauty of the instrument, they may not necessarily know the significance of a, of a design, but to the person playing it, it inspires her to when they're writing or performing, whatever they might be doing. And that's what we're trying to do. Give them something that they'll want to pass down, just like we're passing down our art and our craft and instrument that they'll want to pass down to their family as well. Now, Bradley, what are some of the other folk arts in Tennessee that you would like to see preserved? Oh, we're, we're always on the lookout. You know, there are some um, regional old-time music traditions that are rare and endangered. Um, there's some boat making in West Tennessee. I mean, we can get very specific of, of, of traditions we've had our eye on. Um, that are that are down to one or two people. Some that have come into the program, some that haven't. But I would encourage your listeners, uh, tnfolklife.org, reach out to us if you know of something that we we ought to be aware of. Uh, but and now we're seeing though too people like Manuel coming in to teach again. So we're out there looking for new traditions, not new traditions, but new to the program to support, but also hoping that uh, some that have come through will continue to come through with new apprentices. Maxine, what do you want people to know about the importance of folk arts? I think the importance of folk art is an individual thing. I think, we, as I say, we're all born an original white dye, a carbon copy. And when mm -hmm. it comes to women fashion, I don't think every woman should just look like everybody. Be yourself. Have your own identity. So when you step out, they know this is your own identity. Now, I understand that you once had an apprentice and, you know, there's something kind of personal about that process, almost even spiritual. What was that relationship with your apprentice? What was that like and that well, you she, built? She actually, her grandmother, our real good friend, and she grew up in we, at the same church. And she came to me one day and said, um, would you teach me how to do this? So I was so glad when the opportunity came where we could work together. And we're still, work, we're still working on projects. How does it feel to have her so closely to this thing that you love doing for people? Exciting. Just the mere fact that she had watched me all of these years, and she wanted to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Matt, Manuel, what do you want people to know about well, folk art? 
You know, briefly, you know, what Maxine was talking about, I had a young man that approached me many years ago wanting to learn, and I finally accepted him. And he's like my son now. The girls call him their big brother, and he's the musical instrument specialist at the Country Music Hall of Fame now. Mm -hmm. So you talk about, uh, I, I guess, to answer your question, that's what you want. You want to invest in somebody who's going to appreciate the art form and the history and give it the respect that it deserves and then hopefully carry on that tradition like Jack Kletter, who's who I'm talking about, like he's doing right now with the Country Music Hall of Fame and with the information and the wisdom that was passed down to me, being able to give it to him as well. You know, Brad, Bradley was talking about the challenges of preserving these crafts. Why is it important to you to keep this tradition alive through your daughters? Well, I want them to do what makes them happy, but I want them to understand the importance that, you know, we, we grew up and my grandfather, even though I'm the first generation born here in the United States, he used to teach us like, if you can't build it, you probably don't make it or don't need it rather. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think we, we're in a world now where people are just consumed by a three inch by five inch screen and, and they don't realize the importance that there's people out there that are you know, creating our, you know, pr digging up our produce. They're creating the the things that, you know, help us that have, that have given us the opportunities that we have today. And that's really what it is. It's about respecting the energy and the effort that was put in before us and realizing that it was not always this easy, um, especially if you're a minority. It still isn't easy, but to realize it was much more difficult you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever it is, and having them have some sense and connection with that struggle and appreciating the blessings that they have today because of that. So what does the future of folk art look like here in Tennessee, Bradley? Well, I think it looks like this radio show today. I, you know, I sometimes people get caught up on uh, on these programs and think we're preserving the past, that this is about the past or mm -hmm. that this is about history. And it is, of course, Every one of these backstories is important. But what we're trying to do is push this uh, generation forward, two generations forward, to make sure on our watch that these things don't go away and that new traditions like Kurdish music is welcomed and so that Tennessee looks like this radio show going forward. It's all about moving to the future while honoring the past. That was Bradley Hansen, Folk Life Program Director at the Tennessee Arts Commission. He was joined by Master Hat Maker Maxine White and Manuel Delgado, third generation luthier. I want to thank you all for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll learn more about our Laotian community that is growing and thriving in Tennessee. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tony Gonzalez. And Magnolia McKay. I'd like to introduce her to everybody. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody and be good to each other.